Amen. In way of introduction, the book of Jonah falls into a category of Old Testament scriptures that's known as the minor prophets. Now, you should note that these books are not considered minor in any other sense of their length. Some of the major prophets, like Isaiah, you'll notice the books are long. The smaller books, they're just called minor because of their length. It's been said they're minor prophets with a major message, and that is the truth, especially, as we'll see, with the book of Jonah. Of all of the prophets, major and minor alike, Jonah, the book of Jonah, you should understand right from the, the jump here that it is completely and totally unique from all of the other, not just minor prophets, but majors. First, unlike all the other prophetic writings, neither the northern kingdom of Israel nor the southern kingdom of Judah are ever mentioned by name. Never want, not, not once are they mentioned by name. Secondly, the book of Jonah is unique because it presents not a, prof, a series of prophetic messages, like sermonettes, like you'll find in the other prophets. The book of Jonah is unique because instead of that, it presents itself in a, in a, a three-act drama. It's more of a story than it is some type of pastoral monologue. Three acts. Jonah on a boat, Jonah under the sea, and Jonah in Nineveh. The book of Jonah will read more like the script of a play than a prophetic monologue. Now what's interesting about the book of Jonah is that it actually contained only one eight-word prophecy. Eight words. That's, that's, that is all of the prophecy in the book of Jonah. We find it in chapter 3, verse 4. Jonah, he arrives to Nineveh, and he says, this is all the, the prophetic utterances the book contains, yet 40 days in Nineveh shall be overthrown. And it's with these things in mind that the importance of the book of Jonah, really the reason that we're studying it, is not for its prophetic overtures or overtones. We're studying the book of Jonah because of its narrative, its particular narrative. And it's, it's to this point that you need to know right up front Contrary to popular opinion, what you probably learned in Sunday school, the story of Jonah is not about a magical whale. Yes, it's true, and even fair to admit, that this particular tale does garner a lot of attention. Yes, there's a scene whereby Jonah is thrown overboard, is swallowed by a great fish, only to then three days and three nights later find himself being vomited back alive onto dry land. It's a chippy story. I say Jonah, you say whale. But the story is way more than just this. Consider that while the great fish is mentioned four times in four chapters, and the city of Nineveh is mentioned nine times, Jonah is mentioned 18 times, while God, in just four chapters, is referred to 38 times. As we work our way through this book, keep in mind the story is not about a fish, nor is it really about Nineveh. Instead, by the pure emphasis of the participating characters, this book is a story about a gracious God and the way that he handles Jonah. And there's one more thought before we dive into the text. Though there have been some 
who have tried to soften the supernatural elements of this story by claiming that the book of Jonah should be viewed, it should be read more as, as either being mythological or allegorical. The truth is that the book of Jonah can only really be read literally. Now, I understand. A historical presentation, a literal historical presentation of a narrative that contains Jonah being swallowed by a fish and surviving, I admit, that does provide a complication. And we'll get to that particular detail in later weeks. But understand, a departure from a literal reading of the book of Jonah creates much larger problems than the solutions it aims to solve. Aside from the fact that the structure of the book provides zero evidence of anything other than being viewed and absorbed as literal history. And we know this because right from the beginning, it will reference known places in history and specific people in history, not how typical literary works or fictional works are presented. But to this point, look no further than what Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 12. Let me read you what he said. Then some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered, asking Jesus, or teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But Jesus answered, and he said to them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, but no sign will be given to you except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment of this generation and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. Not only does Jesus' statement to the scribes and Pharisees affirm that he viewed the story of Jonah as being literal and historical, not just what happened to Jonah, that Jonah was a person, that Jonah was a prophet, that Jonah was swallowed by a fish, he also talks about the people of Nineveh and Jonah's preaching. Jesus presents the story of Jonah, comparing himself to it as being literal. But he also does something of particular interest there. The final reason the book of Jonah is unique is because the story illustrates the mission of Jesus. The idea, according to Jesus' own words, of him being greater than Jonah is something that we'll be addressing throughout our study. Let's begin by reading the first two verses. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Now in order to understand this incredible story, it's important we take a few minutes, it'll be more than a few, to set the scene by first establishing the times as well as establishing a profile of Jonah. We'll examine the times, establish a profile. For starters, you should know that this is not the first mention in Scripture of Jonah, the son of Amittai. In 2 Kings chapter 14, verses 23 through 27, we read, In the fifteenth year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, 
Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria and reigned 41 years. I'm not going to run through all this Old Testament history stuff. There's two kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. We're in a divided kingdom. Jeroboam, we're told, did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. That was the first Jeroboam who made Israel sin. This Jeroboam, the second, restored the territory of Israel from the entrance of Hamath to the Sea of Arba, according to the word of the Lord God of Israel, which, and this is what's important, he had spoken through his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath, Hefer. For the Lord saw the affliction of Israel was very bitter, and whether bond or free, there was no helper in Israel. And the Lord did not say that he would not blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, but he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. We find ourselves during the early half of the 8th century BC. Jeroboam II comes to power in the northern kingdom of Israel. What's noteworthy about his 41-year reign is that while Israel enjoyed political stability, economic growth, material prosperity, territorial expansion, which was kind of unique because they were terrible people. No, all of these things happened. We're, we're told here in 2 Kings, not because of the people's goodness. It was not because of their merit. Not only did the high places remain, these places of idol worship, idolatry continued. But the text tells us what? That Jeroboam the king, did evil in the sight of the Lord. Ironically, while the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was bitter, that there was no helper for Israel, God chooses to use this wicked King Jeroboam anyway. And this is what's important because this is setting the scene. Israel was experiencing the blessings of God, not because they had earned those blessings, not because they deserved those blessings. As a matter of fact, uh, it was only because of God's mercy that he was withholding a certain judgment. Instead, Israel is being blessed for one reason, God's grace, unmerited favor. You see, during these years, there was an active presence of God at work in the northern kingdom. It was a unique time. God's grace was seeking to draw a wayward people back to himself. But the prophetic men during this season, it was powerful, it was awesome. There were prophets in Israel, men like Hosea and Amos, who were actively warning of the consequences if the nation continued in their sin and rebellion. God's grace was seeking to draw them to himself, and there were prophets warning what would happen if they didn't. All of this was really occurring because of the influence, the legacy of a man by the name of Elisha. The word of God in the northern kingdom was being proclaimed. You see, it was during this time period that the prophet Jonah was ministering in Israel. As we read in 2 Kings, Jonah had even predicted a victory for Israel. When King Jeroboam would attack a group of Gentile nations, reacquiring land that was rightfully belonging to the Jews. See, this made Jonah kind of different. You had Hosea and you had Amos warning of judgment for Israel if they didn't turn from their sin. Jonah is a prophet working at the same time, but his prophetic working is a little, a little abnormal. 
he predicted victory. Like what's interesting is that his prophetic ministry was not one of doom and gloom, but glory. As such, Jonah, during his time period, even in contrast to his contemporaries, Jonah was a popular prophet. He was popular with the people, and he was popular with King Jeroboam. Aside from all of this, Jewish tradition presents Jonah as possessing quite a profound spiritual heritage. In 1 Kings chapter 17, we're given a little insight into an interesting season of Elijah's ministry during a three-year famine in Israel. God instructed Elijah to go just over the border of Galilee into a Phoenician outpost called Zarephath, where he would find a widow who would provide for his needs. Well, as the story unfolds, upon arriving at this town, Elijah indeed finds a widow, only to then discover she's in bad shape. Her situation was just as desperate as his. This woman was low on provisions. She was running out of food. So Elijah. Elijah performs a miracle where her flour bin and her pot of oil refused to run out. Not only would these provisions be enough so that Elijah would be fed, but the widow and her son would also survive the famine. Sadly, though, as the story plays itself out, in the process of time, the widow's young son ends up growing ill and he dies. And yet, in one of the most amazing miracles in all of the Old Testament, we're told that Elijah comes to the boy. He does something weird. He stretches himself out onto the child three times and cries out to God. Then most incredibly, quote, the Lord heard the voice of Elijah and the soul of the child came back. Resurrection. Elijah resurrected this widow's boy. I bring up this story because according to Jewish tradition, this resurrected boy of the widow is actually Jonah. That's what the Jewish people taught. Legend states that once the famine was over, this woman and her son, they move out of their Phoenician town, they settle in Gath-Hefer, where Jonah ends up being dedicated by his mom to serve the Lord. Over time, because of the connections to Elijah and then his protege, Elisha, Jonah not only is dedicated to serve the God of Israel, but would receive a prophetic appointment by Elisha himself. It is true, if this is true, that Jonah was the resurrected boy of a widow living Zarephath, the implications are radical. First, this means that Jonah was acquainted with resurrection. Like Jonah knew firsthand that the God of Israel had the power to raise even the dead to life. And that idea will become all the more important as we look at Jonah in the belly of a well. Maybe he didn't experience resurrection just once, maybe twice. Secondly, it would also mean that Jonah knew from personal experience how awesome the grace of God was. Think about it, Jonah as a boy, under the circumstances. He watches how the famine 
completely depletes their resources. Not only has he lost his father at some point, he's now seeing a desperation of his mother. They're running out of resources. That look on his mom's face when she used up the last, the flour and oil to make bread, knowing there was nothing else coming. Desperation. But Jonah had also witnessed a miracle, right? Jonah witnessed that in the moment of their greatest need, God provided for them. How? By sending the greatest prophet in Israel, Elijah, specifically to his home, the home of a widow. He watched as the flour and the oil miraculously failed to run out. I'm sure little Jonah was like, I'm going to test this. Let's take the, the flower. And it wouldn't run out. Amazing. You see, Jonah understood that God's grace had saved them. They had done nothing to earn it, nothing to deserve it, nothing to merit it or warn it. It was God's grace that saved them. And in the process, it was God's grace that had afforded them life when their outlook had been death. And while each of these two points adds a certain depth, obviously, to our story, there is one more implication to Jonah being this widow's son that, from my perspective, completely changes the entire way you read the story. Consider in Luke chapter 4, in response to Jesus' rejection by his hometown of Nazareth, Jesus does something fascinating. In Luke 4, Jesus ends up heralding two people to these rejecting Nazarenes. He heralds the widow that we just read about, as well as Naaman the Syrian, as being examples of, check this out, Gentiles who had come to faith and the God of Israel. David Guzik writes that Jesus' audience wanted special favors because he was in his hometown. Jesus' point here is that these things don't matter to God. Using God's work among the Gentiles in the day of Elijah and Elisha as examples. Now let that, for just a minute, settle in. Because what that means, could it be that Jonah was not a Jew by birth, but was instead a Gentile boy who had been grafted into the family of God by grace through faith. Now, before you get real skeptical with me, Jewish tradition even confirms that Jonah was a Gentile. According to the, the Jewish encyclopedia entry for Jonah, let me read you a, a little quote. According to one authority, his mother was the woman of Zarephath that entertained Elijah. As this prophet, who was also of priestly descent, this would have profaned him if he had touched the corpse of a Jew. It was concluded that this woman, whose son Jonah he took to his bosom and revived, was a non-Jew. This entire perspective is reiterated in the fourth volume of Lewis Ginsburg's famous book, The Legends of the Jews, which I'm sure you all have on your shelf. Now, not to descend too far down the rabbit hole, but Jonah being a Gentile. Like, why, why, why care? Like, why does that matter? See, Jonah being a Gentile makes sense as it pertains to the overarching idea of God sending someone to Nineveh. 
Think about it. According to Deuteronomy 4, the purpose for Israel was to be an example, a light, a beacon unto the world. Never once does God ever commission missionary activity whereby he sends out Jews into foreign lands in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant. As one author put it, Israel's proselytism was to be nonverbal. Israel was not so much to preach as it was to obey and teach. This is what made the great commission of Jesus so radical. Instead of the nations coming to Jerusalem to encounter God at the temple, what happens? We find a reversal. God's spirit indwells people, who Paul calls living temples, who then are sent out into the nations to make disciples so that God can encounter them. If Jonah was ethnically Jewish, sending him to Nineveh would have completely deviated from God's core purpose for Israel. However, if he was a Gentile convert, then Jonah becomes uniquely, uniquely qualified to be God's messenger for such an occasion. And in actuality, this is what's amazing to me, Jonah becomes a foreshadowing of the church who receives the Great Commission. Jonah becomes a foreshadowing of you and I and the mission that God has given us. With this in mind, I don't think it's an accident. Do you know what Jonah means? The name Jonah means dove. And we find that the dove is always a picture in the, in the scriptures of what? Of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit indwelling individuals who are then sent out on mission. It's powerful. But wait a second. I can hear some of you thinking. Pastor Zach, great idea, great theory, cool legend. Have you not studied beyond verse 2? Because if you just look down to verse 9, you'll see that Jonah says, quote, I am a Hebrew. Like, aside from this verse, like, we're given a Jewish father. Like, doesn't it seem that the text makes it clear as to Jonah's ethnicity? And, and, and thereby, he's not the son of this widow, meaning we've kind of wasted the last, you know, 15 minutes? Maybe. As it pertains to Jonah's statement in verse 9, I don't believe that statement is definitive either way. From Jonah's perspective, he is a Hebrew by choice, not by birth. He had moved from Phoenicia to the land of Israel at a young age, was circumcised according to Jewish law. He even becomes a prophet. It's not outside the realm of possibility that Amittai could have been an adopted father. To this point in the law, God created a pathway for Gentiles to become citizens of Israel. In Exodus 12, verse 48, we're told that when a stranger dwells with you and, and wants to keep the Passover, let all his males be circumcised, and then let him come near and keep it, and then this is what's important, he shall be as a native of the land. Why is this all significant? Jonah being a Gentile. Though both his identity as either a Jew or a Gentile convert would be 
like they both would equally contribute to a sense of moral superiority over the pagan Ninevites. This is what the prospects of Jonah being a Gentile, this is what makes it so interesting to me. It would mean that Jonah had been a Gentile recipient of the grace of God. And yet now he's resisting that same grace being demonstrated to other Gentiles. That's astounding. Now, it would be bad hermeneutics and poor exegesis to base the entire story of Jonah on an unsubstantiated Jewish tradition as opposed to solid biblical fact. So, instead of being dogmatic about Jonah being a Jew or him being a Gentile, this is my strategy. Moving forward, I'm going to unpack the story of Jonah with both considerations in mind. We'll apply the story from a Jewish context as well as a Gentile context. The two don't counteract each other, but Jonah potentially being a Gentile adds an incredible depth. Notice how the book begins. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah. (laughs) Here you find a faithful prophet actively ministering in Israel who's presently experiencing success stemming from from a prophetic word that came true, right? Like Jonah finds himself in a fantastic place. We don't know how old he is, how long he's been ministering, but ministry is yielding fruit. When out of the blue, what happens? Another word of the Lord came to him. Now we have no idea how this word comes to Jonah. Could have been a vision. Could have heard God speak. Could have been a dream. But we do know that the word itself proved to be unsettling for Jonah. It's unsettling. Because the wickedness of the Assyrian people dwelling in Nineveh had come up before the Lord, God's directive is clear. He wants Jonah to go, to arise, go to Nineveh, and then cry out against these people. Like specifically, God wanted Jonah to tell the Assyrians that judgment would come in 40 days unless they repented. Now, historically, we know that at the time Jonah received this word, Nineveh was the capital of the ever-expanding Assyrian Empire. It was indeed a great city. Nineveh boasted a population of roughly a million people. It was the largest city in the known world in the days of Jonah. Nineveh was a metropolitan center. It was the seat of power. It boasted of affluence and prestige. Archaeologists have discovered that the city of Nineveh, which today is located under Mosul in in Iraq, the city of Nineveh was approximately 60 miles in circumference, completely surrounded by walls that were 100 feet tall, so wide that three chariots could be linked together and drive around the top of the wall at once. Aside from this, There were 1,200, 200-foot-high watchtowers making the city of Nineveh largely impregnable. Scholar J. Allen Blair writes of Nineveh, quote, In its splendor, it was probably more significant, more magnificent than Babylon. But in its sinfulness, it was possibly even more wicked than Sodom. We're told in the intro to this story that God is sending Jonah to Nineveh. Why? The text tells us, for their wickedness 
had come up before him. Literally, the idea of coming up is that their wickedness had reached its highest peak, its highest pitch. Historically, the Assyrians were people known for vice and brutality. Once again, writing to this point, Blair says that the name Nineveh stood for every possible kind of cold-blooded barbarity. As it pertains to this barbaric and brutal nature of the Assyrians, let me read you what one author wrote about them. After conquering a village, they'd hold a man down to the ground. They'd reach into his mouth, rip his tongue out by the roots. The Syrians were known to cut lips or ears off of a man's face. They would set fire to his wife and children before his eyes. Another Assyrian trademark was to set a pile of skulls outside the city gate to remind those who were left what would happen if they rebelled against Assyria. They'd secure a prisoner of war, strap him down so that he couldn't move, make an incision at his fingertips, and start peeling back his skin slowly and methodically. The torturers would literally fillet their victim alive and let him bake in, in the sun until he was dead, and then they would take the skin and cover the walls of the city with human flesh. These are the people Jonah is being sent to, okay? Keep it in mind. As far as Nineveh and her wickedness, from God's perspective, the situation there had reached a tipping point of sorts. From God's perspective, only one of two options remained for this, this group of people. Immediate national repentance or impending divine judgment. There was no middle ground, no fence to stand on. Such was the purpose in sending Jonah. Aside from the pure wickedness of the Assyrian capital, there's another element to the context behind our story you shouldn't overlook. Since the early formations of the northern kingdom of Israel, the principal threat had always been Syria to the north. And yet by the time of Jonah, Jeroboam II, the Syrian empire had completely decimated the Syrians. Now it was this development that had enabled Israel to experience under Jeroboam's reign, prosperity. But sadly, several northern cities in the kingdom end up experiencing the direct brutality of Assyrian incursions. Once again, in 2 Kings 14, we're told that Jonah grew up where? In a town known as Gath-Hefer. Gath-Hefer was a, a, a Galilean village about five miles north of Nazareth, places it in the northern part of the country. And what makes that significant is that during the reigns of Jeroboam's predecessors, men like King Omri and Ahab and Jehu, when Jonah was a still just a lad, Scripture tells us that the areas of Sidon and Galilee were the site of some of this Assyrian aggression. It's highly probable that as a young man, Jonah had personally witnessed the brutality of the Assyrian people. So with that in mind, imagine. Get into the story here for a minute. You're Jonah. Things are good. You get a word of the Lord. The word of the Lord comes to you. 
and tells you to arise immediately, leaving behind everything you know, including the successful ministry, to go to Nineveh and to cry out against it. That would be like me next Sunday coming to you and saying, friends, I received a word from the Lord and I'm going to Raqqa to speak out on the brutality of ISIS in their headquarters. Wish me luck. Like this is, this is the context. And not only that, in the Hebrew, the words go and cry out, they're presented in the imperative. This means that God wasn't making a suggestion to Jonah. God was issuing to Jonah a direct command. It's a military term. As a servant, Jonah was being given new marching orders. And yet, if you're Jonah, there's no doubt that you're aware that this new mission really would only yield one of two results, right? Like you're going to go, the Ninevites, they're either going to reject your message and then kill you brutally, or they're going to receive your message, repent of their wickedness, and be spared God's judgment. Understand, neither of these options sound very good to Jonah. Though I'm sure Jonah possessed a natural fear over the prospects of entering the lion's den. Anyone would. Especially if he possessed a personal knowledge of how sadistic the Assyrians could be. The truth is Jonah's natural fear of going was dwarfed. It was superseded by a much larger and deeper concern. Chapter 4, verse 2, and I don't want to get ahead, but it's important for context. Chapter 4, verse 2 records that in response to the Assyrians, and I know this is a spoiler alert, in response to their repentance and then the demonstration of God's grace, they end up receiving the message and get saved. This is how Jonah reacts. He leads the greatest revival in human history with eight words. And this is his response. Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? You want to know why I fled to Tarshish? I knew that you were a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. You see, as Jonah here, verses 1 and 2, is mulling over the command, Jonah's chief concern, it's not, it's not mission failure. His concern is, is mission success. He's like, I know, God. And he's liable to save these guys. And frankly, that just don't sound very good to me. Jonah knew God. Jonah had a relationship with the Lord. Jonah also knew the inexhaustible nature of God's love, especially his love in the presence of a repentant man. Jonah knew that if the Ninevites repented, God was going to save them from judgment. He was going to forgive them from wickedness. And what's interesting about the story of Jonah is that it emphasizes an aspect of God's plan that's very difficult to understand. It's a mystery. But God has determined to use people to reach people. Like, if God had a word of warning to the citizens of Nineveh. Like, why couldn't he have appeared to them? In the sky, 
I'm God. Repent or I'm going to kill you all. Or send an angel like he had done with Sodom. Why call and send Jonah? There's got to be other options, right? Once again, we return to what the story is all about. God chooses Jonah for one reason. He wanted to accomplish something in Jonah. He could have sent anyone to the Assyrians. He would get his message through one way or the other. They'd have a choice. To get into the story's not about Nineveh, but it's about Jonah. The whole story is about God and Jonah. You see, whether Jonah was presently a Jew experiencing the blessings of God because of grace, or he's a Gentile grafted into the family of God through grace, it's my belief the purpose behind the command to take this word to Nineveh was that God desired to deepen Jonah's understanding of the power of grace. That that is the whole point of the story. Jonah needs to learn some things about grace he doesn't understand. Now, next Sunday, we'll look at Jonah's response. And to set your heart at ease, we're not going to go two verses at a time, but we're setting some context. But in closing, I do want to explain how this reality that God wanted to demonstrate grace to the Ninevites, how that proved to challenge Jonah, right? The end of verse 2, Jonah, we find, like, he is in limbo. He's got a decision to make, right? Accept or reject the mission. But before that, the very command does something into the heart of Jonah. It challenges him. It's important to note, the very fact God was willing to demonstrate grace to Nineveh, it challenged within Jonah two things. His moral framework, as well as his hatred of the Assyrians. Now, if we operate under the premise that Jonah was a Jew, that he was Jewish. We understand then that the entire basis for his relationship with God was based on two religious foundations, right? His obedience to the law and his Jewish ethnicity. And it was directly on account of these two religious beliefs that Jonah was two things. There's no way around the reality that Jonah was a racial and spiritual bigot. The truth is that this belief that being a Hebrew automatically made you a member of God's people fostered in Jonah, among the other Jews, a sense of ethnic superiority. Sadly, the Jews had mistaken their unique privilege as being evidence of a heightened standing. You see, the command for Jonah to go to Nineveh was designed to challenge his racial prejudice. He hated the Assyrians because they were Assyrians. Demonstrating grace, the prospects of demonstrating grace to the Assyrians, you see, this is God's way of making it clear to Jonah that he's not better because of his ethnicity, that God loves all people equally. The very fact God would send his prophet to Nineveh communicated this. But Jonah was also a spiritual bigot. Jonah had come to view his obedience to the law as being the mechanism for his right standing before God. As such, it was this view that created a moral structure whereby Jonah, he doesn't just hate the Assyrians on, moral re, uh, on ethnic reasons, he hates them because he feels morally superior to them. That there was a difference between their sin and his. Once again, Jonah's understanding 
that God was likely to save the city of Nineveh? Well, that challenged something, didn't it? It challenged his religious prejudice. You see, demonstrating grace to the Assyrians was God's way of making it clear to Jonah that since his grace was the only way any man could be saved, Jonah had no right to see himself as better than any man, even the Assyrians. I pray you know this. I I need to say it. All racism is an affront to God's grace and have zero place and the body of Christ. No man has any right to claim he's superior to another, either on the basis of his ethnicity or his religious moralism. And note, I'm not saying this because it's socially relevant or because the mainstream media is mandating that pastors should say this from their pulpits. Honestly, I'm offended that they would dictate that to me It's not their job. And current events have never demanded what I teach from the pulpit. It's the truth. This morning, I'm speaking to the issue for one reason. Not because of current events and what's happening. I'm teaching on this because of the providence of God. The fact that God has led us to a text whereby he's wanting to communicate this truth, his truth. We're looking at Jonah on this Sunday by total accident. Four months ago, I knew we would teach through Jonah. I didn't know when I'd finish Genesis. I wanted one week in between, and here we are. God has determined this is what we're dealing with. I'm not doing it because of pressure. I'm doing it because I represent God, and I present his word. But friend, Jonah missed what so many do. If all mankind, including every tribe and tongue, has been created by God, specifically in his image and likeness, then no one ethnic group has any authority or right to stand superior to another, including the white supremacist. Cancer, racism is a cancer that the Bible diametrically opposes, and it's a concept that has no place in any church, yet alone Calvary 316, a place whereby all of our differences should be superseded by the one strand that binds us all together. See, we have a commonality that transcends our differences, and it's the fact that we've been saved for one reason, because God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. It is grace. Grace is the strand that gives us commonality, that transcends age, race. It doesn't matter. The very command God gave for Jonah to go to Nineveh left him with a choice. He could accept the reality that God's that favor with God was not determined by ethnicity or obedience, But through repentance leading to grace, he could have repented of his racial, religious prejudices. That was an option. He could have done that. Or he could resist God's grace and its implications and run. These are his options. And yet, if Jonah was a Gentile, the very prospect of God demonstrating grace to Nineveh 
serves to challenge something entirely different. Once again, in Jonah's own words, he says he doesn't want to go to Nineveh because he knew that the Lord was gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Consider, how did Jonah know that it was in line with God's character to save these wicked Gentile Assyrians instead of judging them? The answer, Jonah knew firsthand because he had been a wicked Gentile saved by the grace of God. Jonah knew from personal experience how incredibly gracious and loving the God of Israel was. Though Jonah had done nothing to earn it, through Elijah, God's grace had changed the trajectory of his life. Sadly, this presents Jonah as an example of a man who, while receiving God's grace, is unable to demonstrate that grace to others. And man, is that not a message for the church. What's happening? God's grace is directly challenging Jonah's hatred. He doesn't not want to go if he's a Gentile because of, of moralism. He's a Gentile, he knows it. Or ethnicity, he's a Gentile. Those two things are removed. He doesn't want to go for one reason. He just hates them. He hates them. Sure, Jonah loved God, but he hated the Ninevites. Because of their brutality and likely his own exposure to these things, Jonah didn't want to see these people experience what he had, God's salvation. Because of hurt, Jonah craved wrath, judgment, destruction, not deliverance. And you know, here's the truth, the irony. In many ways, Jonah's hatred was justified. The Assyrians were a deplorable people. They were wicked they were some of the worst scum to have ever walked on this planet. They were Nazis before Nazis. What is truly shocking about God's command for Jonah to go to Nineveh is that in light of this reality, God is letting Jonah know that he loves them. God loves the Assyrians? What? Yeah. And you know, beyond that, God would prefer salvation over judgment. See, God wanted the Ninevites to repent so they could be saved. And to do this, he called Jonah. But Jonah would have to lay aside his hurt and his hatred so that he could be a conduit of God's love and grace. Let me explain this in the most extreme way that I can. What is the appropriate Christian response to the white supremacist? Sure, we should call it what it is. It's sin. And yet, does Jesus want us to angrily shout them down, protest their very existence, or throw urine-filled balloons at them? Is that how Jesus would handle it? Is the appropriate response to condemn them from the church marquee? I don't think so. That shouldn't be our response to the white supremacist any more than it should be the Christian response to an abortion clinic or a gay pride parade. See, here's a provocative thought. Jesus died on the cross for the sin of white supremacy. No one wants to say that today. We just want to hate them. But Jesus died for them. You see, Jesus loves 
even the most deplorable sinner. He loves them so much, he wants to free them from their sin. And to do this, he sends people to people to demonstrate his love and to demonstrate his grace, knowing that is the only way repentance ever manifests. In Romans 2, 4, we're told that it is the goodness of God that leads a man to repentance. MLK, a man who did bring about change, he understood what our present society has completely forgotten. The worst and least effective response to hate is more hate because all it does is inflame passions. It never leads to solutions. Christian, you should hate white supremacy. But you should also remember the only power to transform the white supremacist is God's grace being demonstrated through you and I. You see, the remedy to racism isn't war. <laughs> we tried that once, and it didn't work. We're still dealing with the problem. The remedy to racism, it's revival. It's when people filled with the Holy Spirit respond to God's call to go out to even the most deplorable to be a conduit of God's love and grace. It's a fact that the one force more powerful than human hate is God's love. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 5, love your enemy. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use and persecute you. That, my friend, is how the Christian should respond. Yes, it's extreme. But the book of Jonah illustrates the fact that God's grace is extreme. Grace challenges not only racism, but grace challenges how we approach the racist. In the context of his hate and his hurt, the very command for Jonah to go to Nineveh left him with a choice. He could experience freedom from these things by demonstrating the grace he had received to others, or he could resist God's grace and run. It's important we end this morning's message without immediately looking at Jonah's reaction. In this moment, he has a choice. There was a moment in time Jonah had a decision to make. Understand, like Jonah, all humanity has but one of two responses to God's grace. You can open your hand to receive his amazing grace and then be a conduit by which that grace can be demonstrated to others or you can close your fist in defiance. Friend, as we'll constantly see throughout the story of Jonah, resisting grace will not only yield tragic effects in your life, but it ultimately reveals that you're actually resisting God. So Father, Lord, we let that word